Welcome to OpenSAP Invites Thought Leaders, your invitation to learn with us on the go. I'm your host, Elisabeth Riemann, and in this mini-series, we've invited Igor Yablokov, founder and CEO of Prion, to share his AI experience and expertise with us. Episode 2. Prion AI Transformation at Work Have you wondered how AI can drive transformation from the core of the enterprise, help you make smarter decisions, and free up time to focus more on the work you love to do? We'll learn about AI use cases in the enterprise and the vision of Igor's company, Prion. Igor, welcome back. Thank you for having me again. In episode one, we spoke to you about AI in the consumer context and about how it's changing the way we think and the way we interact with the technology in our own homes. So Igor, in the second episode, I'd like to talk to you about the potential of AI in the enterprise context and give us a chance to focus on your company, Prion. Igor, what inspired you to bring AI to the enterprise context with your company, Prion? And what's the problem you want to solve? So that's a great question. What we typically find for any technologies and even outside of uh, artificial intelligence is that the consumer uh, technology companies end up de-risking something as an interaction method. So think... um, you know, leveraging mobile phones for for playing games and and what have you, um, mobile technology, smartphones and what have you, and then eventually they get adopted by enterprise markets later when they have the necessary sophistication, security protocols, um, mobile device management, and and use cases with with business cases and and ROIs uh, that were computed. And so it's the same thing for AI. You you saw it overrun our our um, our homes and our cars and our mobile devices, and so there's a sonic boom that ends up uh, happening, where enterprises are are now um, starting to be curious to say, how can this affect my outcomes as well, because many folks are predicting that. Enterprises that don't transform themselves in the same way that they had digital transformation, they now have to perform AI transformation. They're not going to be long for the world. And um, when it comes to the AI transformation, what aspects do companies really need to focus on there? Yeah, so it's both internal and external, right? If you look at what AI transformation means, it means a range of improvements to customer experiences, uh, to partner experiences and in, in terms of how they interact with their ecosystems um, and their supply chains, and also a range of employee experiences. So those are the big three uh, audiences, if you will, for uh, those improvements. And then what they typically do is they start looking at, you know, how c- can they further knowledge access? How can they further decision support? And then how can they power workflows, you know, with these uh, style of uh, technologies? Mm-hmm. And so what kind of applications should companies be looking at when it comes to AI? What can we look forward to there? I think, simplistically speaking, every AI, um, every company is going to be adopting an AI core to power their most critical of, of uh, workflows. So there will be an Alexa or Siri experience at the core of these companies that will essentially make them aware of what everybody is doing, uh, where, 
um, when and why they're doing uh, performing certain tasks in order to find the most optimal path to the outcomes uh, that they're seeking. And so, um, you know, but at the same time, they have to hit low-hanging fruit. And so the low-hanging fruit that many of them um, uh, have um, uh, have done is in one of two realms. Either they go after high-dollar uh, impact items, right? So these are like a company like UPS, you know, talking about how um, they created optimizations in order to reduce the number of left turns uh, that they make in order to save on fuel. So that's one realm where they tackle a, a big problem that moves the needle uh, for them. Or in other cases, they start um, with much smaller experiments, things at the work group level where they try it in, in one function and then they try it in another function and then eventually um, uh, they loosen it up so that it, it's more pervasive. When you look at some of the um, uh, biggest brands in enterprise software, you know, we tend to forget that they started at the work group level. So the Tableaus, uh, Salesforce, Zoom, things like that, uh, DocuSign, you know, were actually release, released at the departmental level. And, and frankly speaking, even at a singleton level where a single employee started leveraging that tool. And then it started eating into the organization. So it's typically one or another. They either go after something really big, really expensive, but has a very clear-cut ROI if it works, uh, or they end up um, doing light-touch uh, experimentation. Uh -huh. And what do you think will happen to companies that fail to put AI at the core of their enterprise and really invest there, whether it's low or high-hanging fruits? What do you think? I mean, you know, I, I hate to say this, but folks that don't figure out a way to use the tools to allow, uh, to compete in, in a modern age would uh, be the equivalent of a delivery service that still uses horses. I mean, it's going to be that stark. And so it, it'll just be table stakes. Now, of course, you know, all of these decision makers at these companies are, are um, uh, agitated every day because there's not a day that they don't open up a Wall Street Journal or, or something else where they don't, they read about AI transformation and how this one company's leveraging it or how that company's leveraging or somebody's investing that or investing in this. And so it's it's become, um, you know, you know, a basic thing that they have to tackle and and understand how to how to work on it. What I'm actually still surprised, and again, it's back to that um, previous uh, quote, right? Jeff Bezos talks about AI being first pitch, first inning. I'm still surprised at the dearth of AI uh, acumen um, at the board level of some of the largest, you know, Fortune 500 companies. And so, if this is going to be an existential uh, innovation that they need to pivot into and then figure out how to permeate throughout their organization. The fact that at, at the most senior levels, they haven't figured out how to get proper mentorship from folks that have already been working in the in the field um, is um, a bit concerning, but they'll eventually get there. Uh -huh. Do you think maybe they've underestimated the power of AI and the implications if they don't jump on that bandwagon? I don't. I don't think so. I mean, people at at, at that level of seniority uh, achieved it because they were adaptive and and they've been able to take um, their business through different transitions in the past. Um, you know, certainly they have their hands full with the pandemic response. You know, if we if we talk about the short term and and it's a question of prioritization and and I think the majority of those brands get it and and they'll be. Um, 
uh, you know, working through it when they can. Uh-huh. And do you think they're still very much at the start of their transformation right now? In the previous episode, we spoke about being in the early days of AI in the consumer context. So I guess enterprises are literally just starting out. Oh, absolutely. Because I, th- I think, um, look, you know, we've been talking to some of the biggest banks, the biggest airlines, the biggest uh, energy companies and what have you. And, and all of them, and, and I have to say some of the most successful ones uh, show up at the table and say, you'd be surprised um, how nascent those efforts are. And and the fact that they're showing their soft underbelly actually um, doesn't um, project weakness, but it projects st- strength whenever people are honest uh, with you. And I'm like, you know what? You've been busy <laughs> being an airline. You've been busy being an energy company. You've been busy uh, being this uh, great bank. This is why uh, you haven't gotten around uh, to it. And so, you know, it's in some ways, it's it's due to the the thin levels of practitioners necessary to uh, essentially improve all of the all of these uh, industries. In other cases, the technology is still unproven, right? And and it's still being worked on before it, it could be adopted at scale. So it's one thing to to ask an Alexa at home what the weather is going to be uh, like. It's it's a totally different thing to ask. Uh, Alexa, whether you should perform this surgery or that one. And I guess that's where the human thinking capacity and expertise then really comes to the fore. And do you think it's a natural progression then? We first had AI like Alexa in our home, so in the consumer context, and now you're bringing AI to the enterprise context. That's a completely different level of complexity, right? Oh, absolutely. Different level of complexity. And here's why. In our homes, they're essentially homogeneous environments, right? We buy into the Apple ecosystem, the Amazon ecosystem, the Samsung ecosystem, uh, so on and so forth. And and we're able to get all of these things connected together and the light bulbs and the doorbells and and, and what have you. And yet look at you know some of uh, our largest um, uh, enterprises out there, including SAP, right? They are heterogeneous environments. They've grown through mergers and acquisitions right, through a long period of time. And so when you actually look at their DNA test, right, they have bits and pieces of every vendor uh, behind the scenes, right? So they may have Copper and Salesforce and HubSpot and SAP and Microsoft and Oracle and and Amazon and Microsoft and IBM and every every manner of tool you can think of, right? And and then rinse repeat by the number of languages and um, and talent that they have to support worldwide and the machinery that they have, and so the the fact that they're so heterogeneous is um, is uh, you know a, a historical thing that we have to live with, you know, when we're servicing these enterprises with new technologies. Because you need to be able to integrate with a lot more than we would typically find in uh, in somebody's uh, personal life. So is that one of the biggest challenges that we face right now, this patchwork of different technologies that's in place in enterprises? I think so. And, that, and that's why you've seen the rise of certain service uh, platforms like MuleSoft, UiPath, and, and what have you. And I know those are arcane brands uh, to mo- most uh, uh, normal folks. But there are certain technologies behind the scenes that are trying to essentially put some order to the central nervous system of a company so that they can have this one information bus that new and novel applications can latch uh, into. And so that's been one of 
a multitude of different uh, technical realms that had to be addressed in order to solve that problem. Uh, And how do you feel about security risk, about data protection? How do we address those concerns in the enterprise world? Yeah, that's a that's a uh, great question. So, um, as we've seen, as, especially as the context has shifted, where more of their uh, workers are at home and and still trying to perform critical uh, workflows for their for their businesses, um, that's always a near and present danger. And so, you know, finding novel ways of of uh, giving people access to what they need in order to perform their roles while at the same time safeguarding it, whether you know through regulatory uh, constructs or you know technical constructs, um, it, it's a must-have, right? So, uh, in in some ways, you know, a modern brand in 21st century is going to have to figure out how to uh, how to maintain that. So, people don't have um, and uh, and I, I remember hearing this from one of our um, uh, venture capital uh, backers, and it, it was um, it, it made a lot of sense. If you look at um, the uh, the generation um, that's that's up and coming right now, they don't necessarily have an expectation of privacy per se because they're sharing so much of of uh, their world with uh, these uh, technology companies, uh, but they do have. Um, an expectation that those platforms that they're sharing with are buttoned up and properly maintained. And so any entity that's a, a lot more negligent about preserving uh, you know, privacy and security for uh, their consumers are eventually going to evaporate. And so they know that, and, and that's why uh, they're, they're spending a mess of their budget trying to solve that. That's really telling. Do you think we're naive to assume that data privacy is not an issue and that um, bigger companies are thinking of that for us? Or is that something that also we should be thinking of ourselves proactively? Where does the onus lie on the companies to protect our data? Or do we need to think about that ourselves as well? Well, I mean, whose job is to educate your child? Is it the... Is it the um you know, the teacher's job in order to do that? Is it the parent's job or is it a system, right? Where everybody needs to be contributing and the community, um, uh, you know, that's creating experiences uh, for that child as well. Same thing here. It's it's not just your responsibility and it's not just the company's responsibility. If you're silly and going in there and and typing in a password as, as your password, you're going to be in trouble no matter what uh, that company is trying to do to secure uh, your records. And so, there's there's at least dual, if not you know um, uh, you know there's responsibility between the public sector that's regulating uh, these companies, the private sector that's creating uh, these solutions and securing them as best as they can, and also ultimately the end users or the partners of those uh, companies that need to be doing the work on on their side, as adversaries are going to be taking advantage of the weakest link in that chain, and that's why all. All of them have to be firing on all cylinders to make sure that we have, you know, uh, you know, multiple lines of defense. I certainly like to think of it as being a joint responsibility, as you say. Do you think there's still an element of fear when it comes to AI in the enterprise context too? Um, well, that, that's why you know we we try not to describe it as artificial intelligence because it feels like it's us versus them, like uh, and Andrew Yang uh, uh, likes uh, to talk about. Um, 
So it's it's um, you know we we like to describe our solutions as augmented intelligence, where we don't believe that you can replace the creativity and insights that a human um, uh, is capable of with uh, an artificial construct. You know, certainly not in the short to medium term. And as a result of that, we'd rather think of you know how do we put um, you know the best hammer in somebody's hand so they can become better at the job that they're already doing. And so. That's what we're fascinated um, by, and, and we're making the investment in, in that, um, so that there is no fear, right? So there's there's two possible ways um, to try to drive fear out of out of um, um, uh, you know out of people's opinions, and especially workers' opinions. In the short to medium term, it's would you be afraid of a car? Would you be afraid of a hammer? Would you be afraid of this or that? No, they allow you to do your job better. So that's that's what the short and medium term looks like. In the medium to long term, though, where where AI could displace certain jobs, um, I would say, you know, fearing AI is like fearing your own children, you know, who are designed to be better at all the things you do and re- eventually replace you when you retire. So it won't happen in the next three years. It won't happen potentially in the next 30 years. But know that it will happen to certain jobs and why be afraid of it when it's a natural outcome of innovation that that um, our environments have to uh, propel forward. Yeah, I think for me, it really helps to think of it as something that's not in competition with us, but rather something that's really um, a natural progression, as you say, and the most natural thing in the world that children then become better than their parents. And it's a cycle, right? It's um, the cycle of life. And I guess here in this context as well. Igor, on your company's website, I've seen the slogan, be yourself. And this really resonates with me. So I'd like to ask you to explain the thinking behind it, if you would. We tend to hide a lot of uh, uh, puzzles. Um, so there's different ways to read that slogan. It's it's either be yourself or be greater than yourself as well. And um, like I said before, there's a lot of folks uh, in the tech industry that would look at a bank and an airline and energy company and automotive company and, and a retailer and what have you, and they'll critique them. And they'll say, you know what, look how you know um, backwards they are. They don't have this technology and they don't have that collaboration tool and they don't have that scanner and they don't have that AI technology. And they're snickering amongst themselves about how backwards they are. And then, and then I typically correct them. I'm like, can you cook your own food? Are you growing your own food? Can you fly an airplane? You know, can you operate a bank? You know, can you, you know, uh, uh, you know, run a store or, or, you know, construct a highway? You can't do any of those things. The reason why they're not, you know, maybe adopting certain technologies yet or what have you is because they're pretty busy doing all of these other things that the community finds uh, important as well. And so from our standpoint, what we're saying, um, at, at least to um, our our business prospects, is keep doing what you're doing because it's valuable and, and, um, and the market certainly feels that way. And we're just trying to uh, essentially deliver tools that will allow them to be more effective in the things that they're already doing well. And so that's that's you know um, why we're fascinated to uh, broadcast uh, uh, the, uh, those types of missives. Mm-hmm. That's an amazing sentiment, and I think it's 
it's appealing on many levels, as you said. And um, what I've also seen on your website is AI, you complete me. And I think that's an amazing way of looking at AI as well. Yeah, to your to your point, it's not meant to be this competitive thing, right? Uh, and and frankly speaking, I think a lot of that doesn't even come from workers. I think it comes from, uh, you know, politicians that are trying to create these scarecrows because they're always trying to make an abstract threat, um, an out of body threat, if you will, that goes uh, beyond you and beyond them, right? So they're trying to point at a third party, and certainly some people point at immigrants as the as the as the devils. Uh, and some people point to technology as devils. Some people point to <laughs> uh, environmentalism being a, a devil as well. They all love to have these different scarecrows in order to compel people to press uh, uh, voting buttons. And we think that's, um, you know, certainly um, uh, a simplistic view of the world. The world is more nuanced and uh, and and more grayscale, uh, if you will. And to completely be anti-science. Uh, and be fearful of innovation is ludicrous, especially in this country as well, for God's sakes. You know, technology allowed us to uh, um, to uh, complete uh, a world war and eradicate that. It allowed us to, um, you know, finish a cold war. It allowed, allowed us to have a space race where there's so many um, uh, technologies that were uh, invented through the course of, you know, good and bad historical um, um, uh, experiences. Um, and these are all things that happen um, uh, through science. And in some ways, if if religion is driving fear as well, I don't know why they have to be in competition with each other, right? You and I can say the same thing in English and French or German, but it just sounds uh, different. And, and it may not be understood by folks that don't uh, speak those languages as well. So in some ways, you know, if you look at religion as an abstraction and as a form of art and expression and poetry, they're basically describing the same things that scientists do. They're just following a different process because they don't either understand mathematics or, you know, they're, they're trying to describe the same thing in different ways. And so... That's why I have no fear for these things, right? In some ways, you know, call it divine in- intervention or not, we've we were given the ability to make these things, you know, in the same way that I don't understand anti-vaxxers, right? So we were given the ability to create vaccines. Why would we not leverage this tool um, when we all know that those who help themselves, you know, you know, are effective people? Mm-hmm. And I guess it all comes back to, to working together, everyone having their own individual skills, strengths, set of beliefs. And I think it's all about living together side by side in harmony and letting the world of science, art and religion all merge together. And it's a melting pot. And I think it's, as you say, we're all global citizens and we all bring something valuable to the table. And I think it's really good if technology could underpin that and to really help us achieve wonderful things together. Um, if we could turn the discussion back to Prion and bringing AI to the workforce, to our daily working life, what advantages do you foresee there when we bring Prion into that context? What can we expect? Um, well, all right. So w- w- one of the issues that people are starting to predict over the course of the next five years is that you and I read uh, the equivalent of four hours per day uh, or 250 pages of, of um 
of raw text per day, right? So news, analysts, reports, every every form of media you can you can think of, whether it's fiction or non-fiction uh, or what have you. In the next five years, that's predicted to explode by 10x. So how will you be able to continue doing your job, reading the equivalent of 40 hours per day or 2,500 pages per day? That's impossible, right? So when when you think of the onslaught of knowledge that's uh, that's being created on a day by day basis, and by the way, that may have sounded um, uh, astounding, it does, and incomprehensible, and and yet we've we've been corrected um, uh, um, by a chief medical officer of a hospital system um, who said their metrics, um, and I don't know the exact number here, but the amount of content that they need to deal with with new regulations, new therapies, new drugs, new procedures, processes, what have you. Their content is doubling every 73 days. Goodness. Every 73 days. How can they keep up, right? And so um, it's not humanly possible, right? But what we can do is if 90% of that and, and this is why there's no fear, right? Trust me. Um, you know, one of the things that we always joked amongst ourselves is um, don't be afraid for your job. Your boss will find you new things to do, right? So <laughs> you'll still have to process that 10%, which that you will be able to handle the, the most important four hours, the most important 250 pages. But guess what? The other 2,250 pages are going to have to be automatically processed. Why? Because there's no way in heck you'll be able to do it uh, by yourself. So it's an opportunity to free us of this drudgery, I guess, of having to wade through pages and pages of documents and data. Is that correct? Absolutely. And the companies that will figure that out um, for as many of their um uh, workforce and their partners and customers as possible are going to be the ones that are going to be surviving and thriving that transition. All right. If we look at, you know, what some politicians talk about, the haves and have nots, right? Well, look at income disparity and things like that. Let's scratch the surface of it. You know, what fields and, and what types of personalities, you know, uh, have elevated themselves among um, uh, beyond their fellow citizens? Frankly speaking, it's the ones that had access to more intelligence, you know, more information. They were able to derive insights from that and take um, and uh, make decisions to benefit themselves. And then they reinforced and they adapted. You know, they started selling books, but by the end they were, you know, selling cloud services. You know, they started with a search engine, but then they built, you know, mobile operating systems. They started with uh, a Mac and then they end up with iPhones. These are, um, they start as a lumber company, a la Nokia, and then they end up selling mobile phones and now they sell networks, uh, 5G networks. So these are adaptive organizations, right? And so, but they took advantage of information that they were able to glean from markets and, and proprietary information from their own uh, research. If you can take that down to an individual level and activate all of your staff that way, then then you have the roots of, uh, of your own um uh, salvation. And if you don't, then it's already the roots of your uh, destruction that are being planted. 
So it's really about staying adaptive, evolving your business, diversifying in some cases and, and really moving with the tide and, and seeing where the next development's going, never being afraid of it and just seeing the possibility and tapping into the potential of your workforce, I guess, is what you're saying as well, because there's a lot of hidden potential there that can be realized. And, and, and to your uh, point, I think you hit on an important point. Some of the biggest innovations at Facebook happen from a, a lowly engineer somewhere working on something. You know, we all know the famous story of uh, Google AdWords being discovered by one of their um, uh, engineers as well, right? The reason why they were able to take that insight um, that a rank and file staff member was working on is why? Because they, they essentially had a network where the best ideas were able to float to the top and they were able to activate them and and, uh, and put them into play, right? And so if you're a CEO and you don't know what's happening in your mailroom and you don't know what's happening in your dock and you don't know what's happening in your cafeteria, you're eventually toast. And so um, th that's the power of those things that we have a myriad of examples where um, these companies were able to adapt themselves because they were able to leverage um, uh, information and intelligence from all corners of their companies. And those are the ones that have staying power. Mm, so it's been kind of the joint strength of your entire workforce. And I think it's fabulous when employees can bring their ideas to the table, discuss them. And there's an atmosphere of trust where you feel you can discuss, you can brainstorm, do design thinking. And I guess that's really where these innovative ideas can come from that can essentially make or break a business moving forward. Absolutely. So um, do you think when we have AI right at the core of the enterprise, will it change the way we work? Will we have to learn even more new technology? Um, will we have to work with yet another app? And I think personally, I've really reached saturation point here. Um, you were talking about going through lots of documents, all this data that's increasing at such a dramatic rate. We can't really physically do that. So what will the interaction with that data look like? Um, for example, when we look at Prion. How do you enable us to work and interact with this data better in future? In, invisibly, I hope you bring up such, such an excellent point. Um, one of the things that we talked about in the last episode is, is what? Um, relatively few people could talk like machines and, and were able to gain the benefits of, of automation in the past. And one of the beauties with, with AI and AI assistance and natural language and the, and the world that's coming with knowledge management is the fact that it democratizes access to those insights to everyone. And what that means is you can still be you, right? And, and, and use something in, in a friendly way, in, in a natural way and still get the benefit of those insights that were only um, uh, permitted to a relative uh, few over the course of the last uh, few decades. And so, you know, one of one of um, uh, the jests that uh, organizations like ours always had uh, was uh, optimized for end user laziness. And I don't mean <laughs> that in a, in a bad way. It's, it's whenever you have to change behaviors, um, absorption is constricted then. You know, the tool isn't, isn't um, uh, adopted in a major way, and I'll and I'll give you a perfect example from our um, uh, last experience. Um, when we had um, the baby Alexa on the prototype phone, people weren't sure how to use it. They didn't even know how to press a button to activate the microphone. Why? Because they've never encountered such a thing before. And in fact, in private meetings 
um, uh, with the Apple team. This is after uh, they acquired uh, the Siri company, not before when we uh, prototyped on an early uh, iPhone. Um, we had a um, uh, with the team. We had a long discussion about how do we even activate the button so that people can figure it out. You know, do they press and hold the button down um, like a push to talk, like a walkie-talkie that they're used to? Do they just press it? Uh, and then we have to automatically look for silence detection. And that's where uh, we shared that um, your device featured um, a proximity sensor. Why not um, do nothing? Absolutely do nothing. But when you bring it up to your ear, the microphone will automatically open through the proximity sensor. And then when they bring the phone back, you could already be answering the question. And in that way, we found a frictionless way of activating this microphone without people knowing that they activated that. That's one example. Another example with transcribing people's uh, voicemails uh, into text messages. Well, it invisibly became part of their network services with the different service providers that we were working with. So you would call me and leave a voicemail like you normally did, and then I would get a textual representation of what you said. You didn't have to change your behaviors and I didn't have to change any of mine. I just got a bonus that I didn't have to listen to the audio thing, especially if I was in the middle of a meeting and I was able to read what you said. And so when we think of knowledge management, we think of the same way. We're looking at, at you know behavioral cues, um, the psychology of, of, of work and how people do things, because the closer we can get it to be a natural part of what you already do, uh, the higher uh, uh, the rate of absorption and the higher satisfaction uh, they'll be with these new uh, AI tools that are coming. And so that's that's work uh, that is still ongoing for us. And that's so fascinating. I think it's, as you say, when there's no friction there, it's just a natural interaction with technology. And I think that's when we let it become part of our daily lives and it becomes pretty much invisible to us um, and indispensable, I suppose, at the same time. And what I really like is the use of human natural language, the fact that we don't have to learn a new language at all, um, that it's really making the technology work for us and not the other way around. And that's where... Uh... Um, as I said before, I give a lot of credit to the consumer technology companies for de-risking this as an interaction method because they had the wherewithal and and the scale, uh, and they were able to invest heavily in building these devices, putting them in homes, and it just sat there waiting for you to say its name and then and then for you to give a command, and so. Um, that's important, and it really sets the expectation for what we, uh, people expect uh, at work as well. And so we're we're excited to be part of that. Absolutely, I think it's really exciting and really intriguing to see what's to come. So, how important is multimodal communication? Uh, absolutely critical. Um, we're m- multi-sensory beings, right? So, if um, if somebody told you that you can uh, only go into an art museum um, with um, uh, with blinders on, you wouldn't enjoy the experience. And if somebody told you to go to a symphony and not hear it, you wouldn't enjoy the experience. I mean, humans um, have all of these senses uh, that we fuse together in order to um, see the world. This is why we're generally unsatisfied when we're in a Zoom or WebEx or a Teams call or or a, a FaceTime call. 
um, we get so weary of it because it's not three-dimensional, right? The person's not there. We can't, you know, see all of their expressions and gestures and everything else, and it's hard uh, to read. And um, it's it's cognitively expensive for us to pay attention uh, to that. And so as we engage more of the senses, if you think about um, um, speaking is the highest bandwidth way for us to input a command into a machine. And seeing the result is the highest bandwidth way for us to comprehend the results out of the machine, right? If, if, if I asked, um, you know, when War and Peace was written, it's much faster for me to blurt that out than to type it. And if, um, and you know, certainly it, I could comprehend a page of that text back a lot faster than um, if the machine were to, to essentially read that passage back to me. And so it's uniting all of our senses together in order to maximize comprehension is what multimodality is all about. Um, in other cases, um, it's, you know, in a home, in, in, a, in a quiet office, we're able to leverage, um, uh, you know, a, a visual mode a lot better. But when we're driving, um, um, you know, speaking is, is certainly a lot safer and a lot more effective as well. So it depends on what your device can support, where you are, when you are, what time of day it is. All of these different factors come into play. And as a user experience designer, can leverage all of these different tools, again, to maximize absorption for the end user means we look at everything that we have and we pick the communications channel that's most effective to communicating uh, a solution to them. And many of us work in a multilingual environment. We have colleagues across the globe. We all talk a different language. How could AI be implemented to help us communicate without things being lost in translation? Um, I think when it comes to any kind of human natural language or multimodal communication, so much is really expressed through the subtlety of the choice of words or the way our body language works. How can we find some universal way of communicating without anything being lost? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. What in some ways with augmented reality, we'll we'll be able to be by ourselves in an office and virtually project maybe a hologram or or something else of of one of our colleagues sitting in a chair across us. So that's that's how we can solve it from a visual way, vis-a-vis um, -vis the communications, like you said. You know, right now, you know, certainly there's early prototypes and deployments of real-time uh, machine translation. So Microsoft has done that in Skype. Google has been uh, doing uh, uh, doing that on their mobile devices and, and what have you. The problem uh, with those are is they're literal translation tools, right? When you're a native speaker of a particular language, you know that 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 there's a lot more than you, um, um, you know, con conveying uh, information in a literal way. There's abstractions, there's metaphors, there's pop culture, there references, there's all of these other things that create a richness of communication. And so in the same way that we find Zooms unsatisfying, I worry that um, if we use machine translation in a literal way, um, we're going to be missing a lot of the natural uh, context um, and, and richness of communicating with somebody because, you know, we didn't grow up in their towns. And so we don't know what it means when they joke about a particular bakery or a particular comedian or, or uh, you know, describe, you know, a, a certain food. 
Um, it's, it's just not part of our normal language. And so there's a next level style of machine translation that's going to have to tackle um, you know, some of that subtlety as well. So it feels a lot more organic. And so we're nowhere close to that. And I guess it's like you said, then it's where you grow up. It's all about putting things in the correct context, right? So it's the same with words, snippets of words that AI hears over the microphone. It's trying to put that in the right context, ensuring it's been understood correctly, and then supporting us in what we expect, um, either the right answer to our question or giving us access to the data we need. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it, there's, there's, there's so much more to the natural world. Um, you know, many, many decades ago, I mean, there were scientists that uh, were showing how plants communicate with one another um, and could even communicate with other species as well, vis-a-vis -vis the insects that are uh, walking on them as well through chemical signals and what have you. So there's a, so much we don't understand. I, I Frankly speaking, I'm even more fascinated with um, not just the machine translation between us and a colleague in Japan or China or or anywhere else in the in the world in Brazil or what have you I'm, I'm more fascinated I think um, our minds will be blown to be um, citizens of the world and start communicating to other things <laughs> literally other species plants and animals of all type I am jealous that there's going to be a future of that you know call it whether it's children or great uh, grandchildren um, uh, that will have that experience as well because the amount of intelligence that they're going to be able to get from seeing the world um, with other senses if you will is is going to be fantastical in terms of insights so they're going to have a beautiful experience when they um, when they can actually um, understand wind from a tree's perspective it's going to be a completely different world in which they live, I guess, with a completely different understanding. And I think it makes our view of the world today pretty primitive right now. A really exciting discussion, really interesting. And I'm really looking forward to being able to talk to you about this in more detail in our next episode. But to wrap up today's episode, where can we learn more about your company, Pryon? Um, sure. Um, on our website, um, that's P-R-Y-O-N. Dot com. Excellent. Thank you. And we've covered a lot of ground talking about AI, businesses today, moving forward to the future just now. What three key aspects should we remember from today's discussion? Uh, the three aspects are business fundamentals are always the same. So it doesn't matter that there's this new tool called AI. You still need a business case um, and you have a couple of different ways of of bringing it into fruition, either attack critical workloads um, or release it at a workgroup level and then expand it uh, from there. Um, and then, and then the third thing is, is try to uh, engage every corner of the organization. You know, if you have a plan that eventually takes it to to everyone everywhere and then connects it also to customer experiences, those are going to be the uh, the companies that are going to be resilient and ready for the next. Um, uh, stage of growth. Igor, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Open SAP Invites Prion with Igor Yablokov, Episode 2, Prion, AI Transformation at Work. Don't miss your next invite to Episode 3, Our Future, AI Possibilities and Potential. Subscribe now.